coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. What I have found, Davis, there's something magical about 10 inches, uh, 9, 10 inches um, as a general principle. Beyond 10, I think, and 10 inches, most musky anglers would tell you is small. So we're fishing baits that are, uh, you know, 14, 16, they're, they're huge profile, but 10 starts to max out. That was Gord Pizer describing the perfect size and profile bait for muskie. Fishing editor of Outdoor Canada in Fisherman Field Editor and one of the most knowledgeable muskie minds in North America today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. One call to action today, share, share, share. If you get a chance, it'd be great if you could share this episode out or a past episode we've done. If you haven't done that in the past or it's been a while, that's a great way to help us grow the show and help another fellow angler grab some tools and resources to uh, have better success on the water. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro-nymphing reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without shoulder burn. Check out Maverick Fly Fishing Stinger and their other Euronymph products and support this podcast by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash maverick right now. That's maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash maverick. Check out the lightest and most unique Euronymphing reel right now. Before we get started, let's hear from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for swung fly techniques, two-handed casting, and anadromous fish. Find out why Waters West has built a cult-like following around their fly tying materials and shop and why they are the go-to resource for OP and beyond. Please head over to wetflyswing.com slash waterswest right now and check in with Ed and Kyle and get geared up for your next trip on the water. Gord Pizer, one of the most well-known researchers and fishermen for muskie, is on the podcast today. Gord takes us into the Lake of the Woods area and some of the great species and fishing this place offers. We get into some big tips on chasing big predators. We get a little background on his uh, on the seminar program that he does around the country and why he's so sought after, and then discover some of his cutting-edge techniques for fishing. Here we go. Gord Pizer from OutdoorCanada.ca. How you doing, Gord? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for taking a little time to come on the show and chat about... Uh, we're going to dig into muskie, a very popular species uh, for you know conventional and fly. I mean, this is a species that uh, I haven't actually uh, caught yet. So I'm always, I always love going to these episodes because it gives me a little little fuel to get me fired up. But we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about you are the editor of Outdoor Canada. You've got a lot going on and you've got a lot of history there on just the species muskie itself. So we're going to dig into there. First, before we get started, take us back to, let's start with fly fishing because I know you do a little bit of everything, but how did you first get into fly fishing? Then we'll take it into um, kind of muskie. (laughs) (laughs) Interestingly, I probably started fly fishing when I was five, six, seven years old. Our family had a cottage, a summer cottage north of Toronto, up in the Halliburton Highlands, uh, which are famous actually for uh, brook trout. In fact, Algonquin Park, where I did my master's thesis, that's the uh, furthest south 
uh, major naturally producing speckled trout. It's a wilderness park, a million and a half uh, acres. And, and probably like a lot of the folks, Dave, listening, I grew up doing all the wrong things like a golfer picking up golf clubs and trying to learn on your, on your own. But that's how I, I got started and uh, fishing for speckled trout in, in the Irondale River and Burnt River uh, in central southern Ontario. And, you know, I loved doing it. And I was a spin fisherman, a bait caster. And, you know, I was as interested in the science of fishing as in fishing, or I guess in, in fisheries. And it kind of led to uh, my, my, uh, education, uh, University of Guelph, and then I got a master's in resource management. And that led to 31 years working with the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources in a variety of capacities, uh, um, including the district manager here in Kenora on Lake of the Woods, which is one of the largest lakes in the world, probably the best muskie fishery in the world, not coincidentally. Um, and you know, we, we did a lot of very, very cool things here from, from a fisheries assessment perspective, monitoring, uh, both muskies and it's Lake of the Woods is probably the most famous lake, uh, for walleye and smallmouth. So, you know, all over the map, uh, my, my education got me interested in writing about the fish. And one of the things, Dave, I've always found is anglers are really, really keen about, you know, I'd be out with folks and they'd catch a nice fish. It could be a speckled trout or uh, a splake, a musky bass, whatever. And they'd always say things or often would say things, how old do you think that fish is? And then you'd say things like, you know, a, a smallmouth bass, believe it or not, uh, and they'll live here in our neck of the woods to about uh, 20, 22, 24 years. Hmm. They return and spawn on the same rock they were hatched. And you go, how in the world can a fish, and, you know, as as anglers, you and I, we, we like to talk about fish having brains the size of a pea, but you tell me how a smallmouth bass returns to the same rock in a million-acre lake that it was hatched on. How does it do that? <laughs> we don't know, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, we think it's GPS-guided. Uh, we think smallmouth are not unlike uh, salmon. And we did some experimental work here on, on the lake, uh, our fisheries assessment unit, and we radio-tracked them. Uh, we moved them. Uh, we wanted to see what happens under tournament conditions, uh, Bass tournaments are hugely popular now. Uh, but what happens when anglers move fish? And smallmouth being such territorial homebodies, uh, believe it or not, Dave, when we moved them many, many miles, they will do everything in their power to find home. And to the point that, and, and again, not to be uh, controversial, I guess, but in the fall, anglers, bass anglers in particular, like to live well. They might live well their five biggest fish and then at the end of the day, hold them up for a hero shot and then post it on social media and say, we let everything go. The reality is they probably killed 50% of those fish uh, because in the fall, smallmouth also home to very specific wintering areas 
And if you catch them in October, November, instead of feeding up for the winter starvation period over winter, they will do everything in their power to find home. And Mm -hmm. so they're not eating, they're looking for home. And they go into the winter period very malnourished. And what we discovered both ourselves and we replicated Dr. Mark Ridgway's work, 50% of those fish have died of starvation the next spring. So anyway, that's a long way of saying, you know, anglers, when I was fishing with them, I'd say, how old is that fish? And uh, are you telling me a male muskie never gets bigger than 40 inches and they're only females? And so I, you know, you get enough of those questions that uh, it was fun then writing from a, a writing perspective, kind of taking a little bit of the science approach and melding it. And a very good friend of mine is Dr. John Castleman. And John, he's a former colleague, John headed up our aquatic uh, research uh, section here in Ontario. And John's uh, now, he's retired, a professor emeritus at uh, Queen's University. And John said, I love, I love dealing with anglers from a research perspective, because what they see is really, really intriguing and interesting. But the other interesting thing is what they attribute, why they catch fish is usually wrong. Oh, really? But their observations are correct. And John said, I love dealing with anglers because I'm not dealing with paper fish. I'm dealing with real fish. But it's intriguing that the reasons we as anglers, you know, why that trout hit our bait or uh, why the muskie followed in, the reasons we, we say those things are usually wrong. Yeah, right, right, right. That's cool. And so you, I wanted to... The muskie, you got me thinking here because I had a couple questions for you on that. I think we're going to talk a little bit about some of the the fishing here, but let's just start with that with muskie. I know I heard you talking about um, how the figure eight, right? The figure eight versus the just the casting is really important. Has that changed over time, or why is the figure eight so important versus say, you know, making the cast out there and, and stripping it or doing whatever you do? Right. Now, for folks who don't understand, we tend to make long cast tape with very large baits. And muskies are, they seem to be extremely curious. Muskie anglers use the word uh, intelligent and smart, and that is totally wrong. So are they smarter than a bass, smallmouth bass, that's going back to its birthplace? Fish are not smart, to be be (laughs) honest. Uh, They're so well-tuned to their environment, uh, whether it's a steelhead in your neck of the woods or a salmon, but smart isn't the correct word. And one of the things that fascinates me about muskies is because the baits we use are so large, uh, really there's only one way often you can present most of them. And they're heavy. We're throwing 12, 16-ounce, 19-ounce baits. And really, a, a straight retrieve, or and for sure, the lures have some built-in action. But what it tends to do, the fish pull in behind them, and they're curious, and they follow into the side of the boat. And what we're always doing is looking behind our baits, looking below, and then all of a sudden, you'll spot a 48, 50, 52-inch fish. So you're seeing a four and a half, five inch, 30, 40, 42 pound muskie pull in behind your bait and it follows. 
and it's got its nose, you know, three, four, five inches behind your fly or your lure. And then what you do at the side of the boat, you go into what we call a figure eight. And in effect, you're tracing a figure eight at the side of the boat. And the muskie will follow. And usually on that outside turn, when you've got your rod extended, they'll lunge and they'll eat your bait. What we will say, Dave, is, wow, you know, these things are so smart. Uh, they're following our bait in. They're looking for uh, negative clues. They're looking at it. They're, are you kidding? It's got three number giant hooks on it. It's got half a pound of tinsel. It's got two spinners that look like uh, hubcaps. It's not looking for negative cues. It's looking for positive cues. And the positive cue is when all of a sudden we make it speed up, go erratic, go in circles. They go, oh, my God, this thing's alive. It is worth eating. And there's a Canadian uh, fly fisherman. He lives in uh, uh, New Zealand now. Oh, boy, and his name escapes me. And he was the one that really focused on this. He, he makes many, many of his flies out of snowshoe rabbit, the hair between the feet of a snowshoe rabbit. And he was the one that really popularized this, that trout aren't looking at our dry flies or our baits looking for negative cues. They're looking for positive. And it's true whether it's a muskie, a smallmouth bass. And that's the reason the fish follow. And it's also the reason we catch them on a figure eight. Right. Okay. So they're looking for... Are they looking for more of something that tells them like, hey, that's that's a live fish or more like that's a wounded fish? Or what do they wait? What's the cue they're looking for? Precisely. They're looking for something that says this is alive and this is worth eating. So they pull in behind your big number 10, double number 10, double number 13. We're even throwing now uh, inline spinners. And it's got all this wavy tinsel coming behind it, pulsating. And it pulls in saying, you know, this looks intriguing, but I wonder, is it real? Is it, should I eat it? But all of a sudden, then you go into a figure eight, it makes that 90 degree turn, it's the surface and they go, oh my God, it is real. I got to eat. And they lunge and they eat it. But of course, as anglers, we're saying, oh boy, is this fish ever smart? It's following and it's not eating. It's, it's looking over my bait, looking for... Dave, I know some anglers, you know, when you tie your line on, they'll clip the tag very, very short, eight, and they're going, oh, I don't want that fish to see. And you go, you don't want the fish to see a tag in, but you're throwing a bait with three giant hooks on it, half a pencil. Yeah, that's the same. Yeah, I mean, steelhead's the same way. Like, yeah, I don't worry about the tag ends too much because it's... Exactly. Yeah, cool. Well, this is good. I mean, I think that there is a lot of fishing questions, you know, I'm going to have, but I am interested in like, you've done a lot of work. Maybe we could go back to your work. Talk about, you know, you had this year, all these years of working and studying these fish. What did your work look like around muskie? Can you take us there and some of the stuff you worked on over your, your time? Yeah. You know, and this, you'll be fascinated, especially from the trout perspective. We have found, and this is principally the work of uh, John Castleman, Dr. Castleman, who I mentioned earlier, but we have found, Dave, if we were 7%, remember that now, 7% more successful on release. So if the fish that we released, 7% better success in terms of survivability, 
we would double the population of muskies in the lake. Oh, wow. And you go, now, wait a sec, 7%, it doesn't make sense. But again, you've got to look at it from through the way an insurance agent would or company in terms of actuarial tables. The fish that we're talking about, these are already mature fish. So these are the one in 100,000 or one in a million that have survived. The other, their cohorts have all died. So these are already the survivors. And if we could get a 7% increase in survivability of those big fish and a muskie, a female muskie, only the females generally get bigger than 40 inches. Our minimum size here on Lake of the Woods and our minimum size on most of the, the really quality musky lakes here in Ontario is 54 inches. So we're talking about mothers and grandmothers in the fish world. If you could have a 7% survivability increase, you'd almost double the population of fish in the lake. Wow. That is, and I'm glad you mentioned that because that has been a struggle with the musky, right? There's been ups and downs. Maybe... Maybe we can go broad here too, because I've got all sorts of questions about muskie, right? I mean, they, they're spread out throughout the country, throughout both countries, right? And around the world. What is the, can you give us a big primer on muskie? Like they're, where are they native? Are they kind of spread everywhere now? Have they been planted kind of everywhere? They've certainly been, been transplanted around North America. The heartland, of course, was the Great Lakes, uh, Ontario, uh, New York, uh, Minnesota, Wisconsin. So the area kind of gravitating out from the Great Lakes, that, that was the heartland. But today they've been, they've been uh, cultured and stocked as far south, actually, as uh, there's some excellent populations in uh, West Virginia, as far south as West Virginia. And of course, in, when you get into Minnesota, uh, Mille Lacs Lake, uh, Lake Vermilion, and then all through Ontario. But so the heartland is kind of the Midwest. Yeah. It's fair to say they're probably on the top of most anglers' bucket list. Never, never plentiful, Dave. Even in a lake where there's a lot, uh, there's not very many. Very territorial. So, and that's part of their problem, if you will. So a, a big female muskie uh, might pull into a small spawning bay. And she will try and own that bay, if you will. So she'll kind of shield it, um, nudge out anyone else who comes in. And unfortunately, down now on the St. Lawrence, which was probably the spot where the next world record would come from, because of the uh, invasive uh, round gobies that are in those bays, now all of a sudden you've only got one to a handful of fish spawning in a, in a very large bay uh, with tons of uh, egg-eating gobies. And there's been some amazing research on uh, test netting. And over the last three to five years, I believe it is, they've only found two juvenile fish. Muskie. Yeah, in the heartland of where the world records have come from in the past some real dire warning signs. Yeah. How do you deal with that? So what is this? You got this invasive species. Is there, do you have a positive outlook on how we, you know, figure that one out? I'm afraid I don't, to be honest. I have a, I have great concerns. Uh, 
essentially the only way. Gobies are just so prolific and they're, they're just such massive numbers now. It would appear that about the only way you're going to be able to maintain a muskie population is uh, collect eggs from large mature females, culture them in a hatchery, and then stock the fish back into the system. Uh, when they're big enough, they can turn the tables and eat the gobies. The problem, of course, is the expense of doing that. And then you get, well, I want them in Meal Lax Lake. I want them in Lake of the Woods. I want them in Eagle Lake. I want them on the same. And, you know, we just can't afford to do what nature does so easily at no cost. Wow. So that's, so the goby is a big thing. And I mean, over harvesting, right, in, in the past was a big thing. Do you think that was... Was it always over-harvesting the problem and now it's been invasive species? Is that kind of the, is there a change there? I think it's fair to say it, it, the, the shift was a positive one. For sure, as I mentioned earlier, I worked with OMNR Natural Resources here in Ontario. And there's a lake very, very close to us right now, right close to me here, called Lake Wabagoon. And it's over by uh, the city of uh, Dryden. And it was at one stage became world renowned all of a sudden the word got out and it's like it's like uh, fisheries everywhere oh my gosh uh, wabagoon's the spot to go and it was amazing the anglers came from all over the world essentially to fish on wabagoon uh, to catch one of the giant muskies that were in the lake but as i mentioned earlier there are never a lot of them it takes a long time for them to get to the size that becomes trophy. So many muskies were harvested in Lake Wabagoon that uh, uh, John Castleman, Dr. Castleman, and a fellow working on his PhD at the time, uh, Bernie Le- LeBeau, they were afraid there were so few fish in the lake left that they would not find themselves in the spring in order to spawn. And that's the level we can take over harvest to. Dave, we have become very, very good as anglers now. Uh, you know this, the technology yeah. we have, whether we're fly fishing for steelhead or uh, drifting egg sacks or, or beads or whatever. I can remember, I'm old enough, I remember before sonar, uh, before the red box, the green box came. And we would spend eight hours a day looking. And if we were lucky, an hour catching. Today, we do not start fishing until we know there are fish below us. And so it's eight hours of fishing. And this worries me a little bit. Uh, You hear so many anglers saying today, the fishing has never been better. And I would say the catching has never been better, but there are no more fish. There are no more fish today than when I was fishing for muskies 40 years ago. In fact, there are fewer, but we are so good, it appears as though it's never been better. Right, right, right. And then same thing with, yeah, with the fly. I mean, you know, you go back to a time, there wasn't that many people fishing with the fly, and now you've got great fly anglers fishing, you know, casting giant flies, and they got this thing dialed in. It's still not easy. It's still uh, challenging to find fish, but um, I hear you. It's, it's easier to catch them because of the gear and everything we have going. You know, uh, you look at uh, boobies. Uh, which are banned on many lakes in Britain. Oh, they are. They're banned. Oh, there, there are many fisheries in Great Britain uh, where you cannot fish a booby fly. 
<laughs> because what anglers were doing was casting them out from shore uh, on a sinking line uh, with a short leader, maybe a four or five foot leader. And then because the booby floats up, they would the sinking line takes it down. Now the booby's suspended, whatever depth you wanted off the bottom, and then they would lay the rod down. And so a cruising rainbow or brown or whatever would see it and attack it. And most of the fish would swallow the booby. And now now we've got Euro-nymphing. I fish for grayling up on uh, the Wolf River in the Yukon. And it was such a great, I fly fished up there with John Horsey. And John was the gold medal winning world champion uh, leader of the Great Britain fly fishing. And now it's obviously the fishing is great up there, but... Dave, we wouldn't move from one hole until we caught 50 grayling. Oh, wow. And we were, that was, the, that was when Czech nymphing was just getting underway. And then you go, my Lord, you know, if everyone starts doing this, as I mentioned earlier, there's no more fish. We're just getting very, very good at what we do. Right, right, right. Yeah. And the Euro nymphing thing is definitely one of the most effective ways to fish for trout. And yes. partly it's just because you're, you're getting down, your fly is in the zone more often, right? That's probably the biggest thing. You're presenting it correctly. That's right. And, you know, as, as a steelheader, um, you mentioned steelheading. And now, you know, uh, I'm a bass fisherman as well. And drop shotting for bass was so revolutionary, a technique that came in from Japan about 25 years ago. And now I see it's all the rage, you know, in, in the trout world. So folks fishing, uh, I know in British Columbia, you're only allowed one fly in BC. And so what they're doing now is putting a split shot down at the end of the line and then fishing a drop shot nymph, whatever distance they figure they need to be off the bottom. So you know, six inches a foot, two feet off the bottom. And it's taking a technique from Japan that was actually developed by commercial fishermen to keep their bait off the bottom so crabs wouldn't eat when they were commercial fishing, got adapted by smallmouth bass and largemouth bass anglers, and now has made its way into the trout fishing world. And you go, this is, it's just amazing. And it's fascinating watching the the technology and the techniques change and evolve and develop. And, you know, when I'm doing seminars, one of the things I say to folks is watch what happens. It's why I would always say if you're a fly angler, spend a little bit of time at least watching what the spin guys and the bait casting. Because, Dave, the number one thing I have learned overdoing this for 50, 60 years, is if you can be the first to bring a new technique, Euro nymphing, uh, booby fishing, uh, double 10 bucktails for musk, if you can be the first to bring something and show the fish, you're going to be really successful. Even more important, if you can take a technique out of its element. So if you can take a fly technique and adapt it in the spinning world, or take a spinning technique and adapt it in the fly world, you will be so successful. Yep, yep, that's a great point. No, and, and we talk a lot about that. A lot of the people, you know, 
that have been the innovators, and they say that a lot, whether it's Kelly Gallup or, you know, uh, Blaine Chocolate, they're always, you know, these are guys that are talking about their influences from the conventional fishing, right? And, and that's yeah. basically what they're doing. Like, I think Kelly talked about, you know, taking some of the, yeah, just that, right? Following people that were gear, conventional people, and, and making it fly. So this is awesome. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about the Outdoor Canada, you know, your editor of Outdoor Canada. I mean, you've got a lot going on here. Maybe you, you could bring us into that, and we can still... We'll bring it back to Muskie in a bit, but talk about what you have as far as your editor of, of a couple of magazines or you're in the field with some stuff. Uh, give us that little rundown. Yeah, uh, fishing editor. So I'm the fishing editor of uh, Outdoor Canada magazine. We're the largest outdoor uh, magazine in Canada. We have uh, an audited readership of 2.2, I believe it is 2.2 million readers. And you know, we're, we're bi-monthly, so every two months, uh, the big spring fishing edition and then the spring edition typically focuses on trout. Uh, the summer editions are more smallmouth, musky, and of course, then in the fall, we're, we're heavily into the hunting side of things as well, moose, deer, bear. Uh, we cover from British Columbia to, you know, I've been bluefin tuna fishing off uh, Prince Edward Island. Uh, got a 950, a 900, and a 850 bluefin tuna. So yeah, we covered the field. We're, believe it or not, amongst uh, kind of the males. I believe it's something like uh, 19 to 35 age group. That that outdoor age group. We're the second most read magazine by that age group in the country. So yeah, we focus on hunting, fishing, camping, outdoors. And then in the U.S., I'm the field editor with In Fisherman magazine. And most folks will know In Fisherman as it's kind of the magazine that's most the avid, avid guys tend to gravitate towards. It's it's not something maybe that the newcomer might be, but it's reading. Um, and In Fisherman magazine, the company that used to own those also owns the uh, Sportsman's Channel. So, you know, I used to co-host the uh, In Fisherman uh, Ice Fishing Winter Series television. They're into 25 million homes, potential audience of 125 million uh, viewers in North America. Uh, In Fisherman television, radio, the magazines. So (laughs) that keeps me... And then my my buddy, uh, Bob Azumi, uh, Bob had the... uh, the most watched television show in Canada, The Real Fishing Show. And and I uh, had a nationally syndicated radio show uh, for 32 years that was syndicated across the country. So it's kept me busy. Yeah, yeah, you've been busy. When did the um, Outdoor Canada, you know, when did that become? Like, when did you get into all the right? Have you been doing this for a long time? I have, Dave. Uh, Believe it or not, I started in the... The magazine just celebrated its 50th anniversary. So the 50th anniversary was the 2023 series. And all season long, we ran the 50, you know, the 50 top fishing tips, uh, 50 greatest fishing spots in Canada. And if folks want to read any of those, uh, the magazine uh, usually puts the, the features and the columns online afterwards folks want to look at any one of those, just go to uh, outdoorcanada.ca. And uh, I write a blog three times a month for the magazine. 
Um, and then all of those things that we've just talked about, the features and the columns, uh, usually about six months, three months later, get put up online so folks can go and watch those. But anyway, uh, the magazine is celebrated its 50th anniversary. And I think I started writing for them about 42 years ago. Wow, that is amazing. So you've been there almost since the beginning. So basically the kind of the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s you got going. What were you back then in the in the late 70s, early 80s? What were you doing before you got going on um, writing for that magazine? You know, again, I was working for uh, M&R. So my day job, if you will, I was... Uh, I was actually uh, uh, working for the Ontario Ministry of Natural Resources. I ended up here in Kenora uh, as the district manager here. We have, we have a large area, about three and a half thousand lakes, including Lake of the Woods, which is one million acres in size, 65,000 miles of shoreline, uh, 14,000 islands, and one of the most significant uh, fisheries in the world, actually, and uh, yeah, so it was it was a great um, to synergistic relationship because I love fish. I was working with the bios, the fisheries assessment unit folks, managing the resources, uh, chairing a number of the uh, regulation committees, and then at the same time uh, was able to write about it and. So as I mentioned earlier, it was a great opportunity to kind of meld the two. And what I found so fascinating was uh, how the science really does interest most folks who fish. Yeah, no, it does. I think always learning about it is, is key. So Lake of the Woods, so would you say that's kind of been your, your home waters over the years? And is that still kind of, do you call that home? <laughs> it, it is. I, I have been really fortunate. Uh, because of the magazines, you know, I fly fished for the wildest strain of brown trout left in the world down in Tasmania in Australia. I fished for northern pike in the Gulf of uh, Bothnia off uh, Finland and Sweden, you know, so I've been all over the world, but Lake of the Woods is, you know, when my time is up, that's where my grandson's going to spread my ashes. Right. That's it. Lake of the Woods. And, and it does look unique. I, you know, I haven't been out there, but how is Lake of the Woods? I mean, what makes it so unique? Is it all the, the shoreline, the islands? Like if you compare it to say one of the, you know, because right across you got the Great Lakes, right? Not too far away. You got a bunch of even bigger water bodies. What makes Lake of the Woods so, you know, unique? It is unquestionably the 14,000 islands. So if you can just, you know, folks listening, um, they imagine kind of the, northern Ontario or northern Canada and you you know your first images is is uh, of pine and spruce studded islands 300 year old 400 year old red and white pines uh, the loons calling in the morning bears swimming from island to island deer on them and that's what Lake of the Woods is and amazingly there are 70 major main base fishing lodges on the lake. It's within easy access of 100 million American anglers. It's in easy access to virtually all of um, Trans-Canada Highway goes right. Yeah, it goes right through it. Uh, so it's easily accessible. And yet here is paradise 
right at your doorstep. Yeah, that's it. So that is the thing is that it's not only is it adjacent to the United States. I mean, it is Minnesota, right? Is part has part of the the highway part that is half of its United. Well, not half, but part of it's the in the United States of the lake. One third of the lakes in the U.S. In fact, I used to co-chair the Ontario Minnesota uh, Fisheries Technical Committee with Jack Skrypek, and Jack was the director of fisheries with Minnesota. And so one third's in Minnesota, two thirds in Ontario. And right now, Dave, uh, uh, we're heading towards the end of the ice fishing season, but there are probably 500 to 1,000 miles of plowed ice roads on the lake, and they would be eight to 10 lanes wide. Wow. You can drive your car and go fishing anywhere you want. Oh my gosh. So there's thousands of miles of plowed ice roads. Ice roads. That is cool. Right down to the ice with the huge snow banks on either side. You can drive 40, 50 miles an hour and you go, wow, look at this gorgeous island over here. Look at the point or the bar. Or the we'll, we'll go catch some walleyes uh, and we'll we'll have shore lunch. And you, you build a fire on shore and you and the kids are snowshoeing or cross-country skiing or driving their snow machines or whatever or fishing. And you get catch a couple of walleyes, you come in on shore, you get a beautiful uh, campfire going, and you cook them up and have shore lunch. Today's episode is sponsored by Country Financial. The fires in the Northwest and throughout the West in, in the last few years have been devastating for thousands of people. Uh, those folks, some folks have lost their homes, their belongings, uh, and their sense of safety has all been challenged. This is why insurance and protecting your assets are so critical. Dalton at Country Financial is here, and he was on the front lines during the fires, handing out checks to Country Financial community members, providing drinks, food, and more. And each time Dalton meets up with a client, he does an extensive review of their current assets and coverage. This is his opportunity to really decide and let you know what you need uh, to make educated decisions for your insurance needs. This is a super critical piece. And Dalton Roy, Roy loves it. He loves getting out in the rural community, connecting with people, loves the outdoors, fishing, hunting, everything that goes with it. And so I'm excited to be sharing uh, Country Financial and Dalton with you. The unexpected will happen, so it's always best to make sure your assets and life are protected. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash country right now to get started. That's C-O-U-N-T-R-Y. Check out Dalton and support this podcast in a great local company right now. What is the, on Lake of the Woods, and maybe this could be more in general, what species do you think is kind of the, what are the most popular species out there? I mean, you got a few, but what is the one? Is there one or are they all kind of equal? Um, it's one of the really interesting things about the lake. There are 48 major species in the lake, but it is world renowned. It is, when people hear the word Lake of the Woods, walleyes are the state fish of Minnesota. They're the most popular fish in Canada. And Lake of the Woods is, is renowned for its walleye, smallmouth bass, northern pike. Uh, we got a close to 30 pound northern, my grandson and I. Uh, two days ago, we've got over 30-pound lake trout. Uh, we've caught 42, 40, 
four-pound muskies. So lake trout, northern pike, walleye, smallmouth, largemouth, black crappies, one of my favorite, yellow perch. So you name it, they're here. Everything, 40, <laughs> 48 species, that's amazing. Yeah, so it's got it all. This is good. I mean, I knew this was going to kind of be the, the, the challenge is kind of, I wanted to dig into everything, um, you know. But let's take it back to muskie because that is, you know, one of those species that's popular. Maybe, do you think muskie is the one out of all those that's the hardest to find? Which one do you think is, first of all, the hardest to find, but then the one maybe that's most challenged by, you say, maybe some of these conservation issues that you've dealt with? Yeah, the, the certainly from an angling perspective. And, and it, it's probably the reason it's at the top of most, both fly fishers, spin fishers, bake. It's most anglers at the top of their list, they'll say, I want to catch a muskie. They're elusive for a whole pile of reasons. Uh, being an apex top predator, they're kind of like the, the, uh, the big male lion on the African savanna. Uh, you know, they're, they're chasing herds of gazelles. In this case, the muskies are tracking schools of ale, of ciscos. Uh, and suckers and whatever, but they're never plentiful. And my grandson always jokes, if people saw the size of some of these fish, they wouldn't go swimming on most of the beaches. <laughs> Not that they'd ever attack you, but they, right. they don't just don't know these fish are in the lake. But And that's the challenge of, of uh, and again, I'm using the wrong word here, but I'll say outsmarting. Uh, fish that's just so well tuned to its environment and grows so large. So yeah, there's there's not much more successful than or uh, more fun than going out for a day or two and cast, 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 and then just when you want to give up, you look down at your bait and there's a fish that's almost four feet long and weighs you know close to fifty pounds, and Jeez. then it hits your bait. Well, musky fishing buddy and I, we always laugh because we put in all this effort to catch them and then we can't release them fast enough. Right. That's it. Gosh, that's amazing. And so you spend these days, so you're still um, editor. Are you still fairly busy now that you're, I mean, what keeps your time going during the weeks now? Yeah, you know, I just, uh, I we're in winter, obviously, but so I've just come back from doing the, uh, we did the ultimate ice fishing show seminars down in Toronto. Uh, I did the big, uh, the seminars, the ice fishing seminars over in Winnipeg at the special show there. And then in Toronto, more recently, in fact, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, we did the uh, Toronto Spring Fishing Show seminars. They were all essentially open water. And believe it or not, Dave, hmm. the, the huge attraction there is what's called Musky Sunday. And it coincides with the annual uh, general meeting of Muskies Canada. So all the clubs in Ontario from North Bay, Ottawa, some of the clubs, I think, from Montreal, Toronto, London, wherever, and they were all at the show. So uh, we did a seminar on Musky Sunday. There were probably close to a thousand folks uh, that came and sat in for that seminar in the auditorium. And if we've got the time, I, what I talked about, believe it or not, was the uh, two fellas from the Netherlands. They arrived at Eagle Lake uh, Island Lodge. Never had seen a muskie before in their lives. 
uh, as I said, these are really good anglers. But they never caught a single fish figurating. They caught all their fish on the cask, and they did not use a single North American style rod, reel, line, or lure. And they shocked all the guides at the resort. So I, I know the owner well of the, the resort that they stayed at, and she was posting on social media all the, the fish they were catching. Now, they caught eight or nine over a 10-day period, which to many folks might not sound like a lot. But trust me, for muskies, that's a lot. Of, if you average one a day, uh, that's absolutely fantastic. But they were doing that. So I had to track them down, and which I did. And it turns out one of the fellas, he's, uh, I believe he works with NATO, and he's actually in Washington, D.C. right now and uh, on loan from the Netherlands. But then I tracked him down when he was both in, in Washington and back home in the Netherlands and interviewed him at length and discovered how they were doing it. And it was the most fascinating thing. And but they caught all these these magnificent muskies. And you could throw the rule book out. They were doing it in ways. And here's the funny thing. So so I, I both wrote this up in the current fishing edition of Outdoor Canada magazine, and I presented it at the seminars in Toronto and detailed all the things that the, the folks from the two anglers from Holland told me about. They took their pike techniques, European pike techniques. So you can almost think about this as kind of Euro-nymphing coming to North America. This was European pike fishing being transferred to the musky world in North America. And it was amazing. But the reality is probably most of the folks listening go, yeah, that sounds interesting, but I'm not going to change what I do. Right. But it worked very well, as well, if not better than what others were doing there. It worked fantastically well. So I'm not one of those folks that so you can bet I have some uh, Dutch pike baits on their way heading to me as we speak. And I'm going to be trying those techniques. So again, as we talked about Dave at the very beginning of the show, um, and maybe you and I'll chat about this later in the season. I'm going to take their baits, their techniques. I will be the first in the world to ever show them to the muskies on Lake of the Woods. And it'll be fascinating to see how well they do produce. Amazing. Yeah, that's cool. I think that is, uh, that'll be good. We'll, we'll definitely circle back with you to hear about that. Because I mean, yeah, now our muskie. I don't even know as far as their kind of where they are distributed. Are there musky across, you know, the ocean? No. And this is the fascinating part. They had never seen a musky before in their life. And yet they shocked the guides at the resort. They shocked all of the, the veteran musky fishermen who were staying at the resort. And no one could believe what they were catching. And they said, all we did we studied the fish, and we knew they liked fast movement, and they knew we knew they liked erratic action. But uh, Arjun, the the ringleader, if you will, he said, "I'm not. I wasn't going to throw sixteen ounce baits all day. They're heavy, and I wasn't. I wasn't going to figure eight after every cast." He said, "So I figured 
I would take our pike techniques, our pike rods, reels, lures, but present them in ways that I saw the local muskieing, and they shocked everyone. Huh. How similar are muskie to pike? Very same family. So they're certainly esockids, uh, they're pike family. And in fact, they're so closely related that they will crossbreed and produce what are known as tiger muskies, which are half muskie, half northern pike, but they're sterile. So the tigers, and they're absolutely beautiful, magnificent fish. They're probably the rarest of all trophies. But muskies are the solitary kind of lion on the savanna, whereas northern pike are very prolific, very numerous, very gregarious. And in fact, uh, pike spawn early, early in the spring in the very same areas that muskies spawn in a month later. And so when the muskies lay their eggs and then they hatch, this entire bay could be infested with young of the year, little fingerling, uh, small fry, northern pike, and they just devour the muskies. So they they compete with each other, but they're of the same family. And the other interesting thing that a lot of folks don't realize, there has never been a musky world record that didn't come from a lake that also had northern pike in it. In the pure musky lakes, they never get really, really large like they do in the lakes where there are northern pike. And so, again, you, it starts to be fascinating. Why would a muskie get so big in the northern lakes? Well, there's only one way you can stave off extinction if you're a muskie, and that is to lay more eggs. And there's only one way to lay more eggs, and that is to get bigger. Right. So they're getting giant, and then lots of big northern pike they're eating, or the, that's part of it, right? That's just their... Exactly. So it's that synergistic and again, as anglers, you know, you'll meet some musky anglers or northern pike anglers, and they like to kill the northerns. Oh, they eat up all our fish. And you go, guys, they have evolved for tens of thousands of years. They don't need your help. No, definitely not. Wow. Okay. And you talked about some seminars. Do you do some musky seminars as well during the year? I do, Dave. Uh, probably did. Uh, half a dozen at least this winter for the various muskies Canada clubs across uh, Ontario. And actually, uh, we did, uh, uh, my grandson and I, we did one with the uh, Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul. So, yep, do lots of seminars, Zoom seminars, do lots of podcasts like this, do regular podcasts with Fish in Canada, uh, television. And, and so, uh, yep. Yeah, you got a lot going on. What would be like if you take one of those seminars just in general, like a muskie, what are you covering in that seminar? What's your typical seminar look like? Usually it depends, uh, but because we're typically doing them for muskie clubs, so it would be like you doing a fly fishing seminar for a steelhead club. For sure, you'll touch on a few of the basics, but uh, most of the folks uh, are there for some cutting edge technique, maybe uh you know, cutting edge, uh, tackle, uh, electronics, equipment, baits, technique, but more tips, tricks, techniques for very, very specific situations, uh, how to beat the wind or how to play Langmuir currents. When you see the white foam lines set up in wind, they can be absolutely magnificent for muskies. 
uh, because wind doesn't go across the lake like everyone thinks it does. It actually turns like a turbine. And that's why the foam gets every 10, 15 feet apart. Totally different than the way we imagine wind going across. And when that hits a good musky structure, it turns them on like nothing. Mm, nice. Well, maybe we can dig into that as we start to take it out here. Maybe we can think of a few, you know, maybe uh, four or five or so, like just tips on musky. Maybe that apply to both fly and conventional. If somebody was going to be heading out for musky, do you have a few tips we could toss out there? Absolutely. And it really relates back to what I said about the uh, Dutch fellows, uh, the fellows from the Netherlands who came over. The most striking thing, Dave, was that they did not use the gigantic baits that we use in North America. Our philosophy is bigger is better uh, for muskie. So the bigger the bait you throw, the bigger the fish you'll catch. And it simply is not the case. And I have a couple of friends who are exclusively fly fishing for muskies. And as soon as we realize, you know what? You may be at an advantage fishing a fly because you can strip it much more quickly. There's no water resistance. But the real key is fast motion and erratic action. We talk about it as hunting for center. You always want a bait that hunts for center. And what hunting for center is, if you throw a traditional lure out and so it wobbles through the water, if it wobbles through the water, it's coming through, but if it all of a sudden veers off to one side, maybe the right or the left, and then swings back into center, and then as you continue reeling it quickly and working it, it veers off to the left and then comes back to the center. It's not an out-of-tune crankbait. It's a bait that hunts for center, off to the right, back to center, off to the left, back to center. And then you increase the speed, you will be much, much more successful than going bigger. And so a fly, a fly may be the absolute ideal. Yeah, that's perfect. What would be, uh, like, just as far as size of, say, fly, or I guess you talk about, you know, a crankbait or something like that, what would be a really large, and then what would be more of, you say, in the sweet spot? You know, it's that's really, really, it's one of the things I also talked about. What I have found, Dave, is there's something magical about 10 inches, uh, 9, 10 inches um, as a general principle. Beyond 10, I think, and 10 inches, most musky anglers would tell you is small. So we're fishing baits that are, uh, you know, 14, 16, they're, they're huge wow. profile, but 10 starts to max out. And to be honest, this past year, a super shad wrap, and it's a bait that most folks would throw for bass, pike, it was by far our number one producing musky bait. It comes in at about seven, eight inches, and that is where we're going to concentrate this year. Instead of 10, we're going to drop down to seven, eight, and we're going to pick up the speed and be far more erratic. If you can make your bait react in ways that even you can't control, if it's going out to the left, out to the right, up, down, but doing it quickly, if it wanders and is so erratic that you can't control the action of the bait, that is the key. Gotcha. But then, like you said, comes back to center every every once in a while. Yes. 
Very cool. Gosh, this is great. So, and that is something that, you know, you hear about as far as the flies that are tied, right? That you tie them, that, that they do that, that they kind of, you know, they're not doing the same thing. They're kind of jerking left or right, right? In fact, I think that's the name of some of the, there's some patterns out there, right? Well, what is the jerk bait? Maybe for somebody who doesn't know the conventional gear, what would be some of the top lures that would be used for muskie? Well, you, you have uh, jakes and grandma baits. Uh, we use a lot of topwaters, noisy topwaters, prop baits. They're called big, big, huge props. But uh, super shad wrap uh, in the smaller sizes. Uh, we use a huge amount of soft plastics. And when I talk soft plastics, we're talking, again, 10-inch baits with huge paddle tails, rover paddle tails, uh, shadzillas. And these are meant to mimic 12-inch baits. But again, one of the things that I come back to is they're so big that you tend to produce them in a very rhythmic, hypnotic. So they come through the water always doing the same thing. Even if you pick up the speed, they're still only wobbling and doing the same thing. And as we get bigger and bigger and bigger, it actually hinders our ability to be fast and erratic. And I come back to the fly anglers. I honestly believe I have a friend in Southern Ontario, Mike McNaught. He fishes exclusively with a fly. And I honestly believe that if the fly anglers learned uh, as much about muskies as most muskie anglers do and then translated it to fly fishing, they would put muskie fishing, uh, turn it upside down. Really? There you go. And how would they do it? What would be, there are a few folks that, you know, you would recommend to follow out there that would be good to learn from as far as some of those tactics you're talking about in the conventional side? Well, one of the, the interesting thing there is, again, OutdoorCanada.ca, our fly fishing editor is Scott Gardner. And Scott is exclusively fly fishing, and he does target muskies and northerns. And uh, I would suggest, again, folks, just uh, click OutdoorCanada.ca and, and look at what, uh, you know, Scott is putting out and, and any of the other things. But uh, I would say right now he's probably the top uh, fly fishing musky northern pike angler in Canada. Oh, perfect. Yeah, hopefully we'll be, I'll talk to uh, Scott as well. That would be great to, to chat with him. Yes. Um, so let's say, and we talked about, you know, we're not going to have a ton of time to go deep on the conservation. Um, I was thinking about like the canary in the coal mine, right? And we might have alluded to this, but what do you think as you look out what's going on? You know, you got climate change, changes in water temperatures, things like that. What do you look at when you say like what's going on now, what we can expect in the next 10, 20, you know, 30 years as far as muskie, some of the species we talked about, and then trout, right? Because you also have trout that aren't too far away. I'm not, and I know you're not either, uh, Dave, trying to be political here, but no. uh, the, the reality is our waters are warming up dramatically. Uh, they truly are. I hate to say this. I have a very good friend, Dr. Uh, Peter Colby, and Peter headed up our walleye research area. And if you look in, in Wisconsin right now, there are 170 major lakes in Wisconsin that are in danger of losing the cisco population. And ciscos are a fish that they're herring. So for the West Coast folks, they're, they're literally freshwater herring. 
And because of the warming water on the surface, they're being driven deeper and deeper and deeper. But because of oxygen depletion in the summer and temperature, they're having to rise. So they can't find, we, we call the thermocline the Cisco layer. And it is being eroded to the point where it is now disappearing from many lakes. And Peter will tell you, and he's told this to me, these are the golden years for smallmouth bass, muskies, those warm water fish. And he said, say sayonara to salmon and trout. Really? Wow. So that's it. So basically, the changes are pretty dramatic. And uh, everything's going pretty well right now with steelhead salmon, trout, or it feels like there's lots of fish. But you're, what you're saying is the trajectory is, is not looking good for, for temperatures. They're not, especially inland. When you look at the Great Plains right now, what happened this past year in Montana, uh, the dry <clears throat> uh, record droughts, it, it is not auguring well. And the other thing, Dave, I would always come back to from a conservation perspective, and I've done uh, several blogs and, and talks about big fish matter. Big fish matter. Fish are one of the few animals. It is totally wrong when people say, oh, it, it was a big fish. She spawned many times and passed her genes on. Uh, her eggs are not viable. That, that is absolutely wrong. The biggest fish produce the biggest eggs, and they produce the most viable eggs. Big fish matter. They're the ones that need to go back. Uh, fish never stop laying eggs. And I have a very good friend, Jeff Maddity, and he heads up the uh, Saskatchewan Fish uh, Hatchery Program. Jeff will catch uh, at, at, at spawning time when they're stripping walleye or catching big walleyes. Uh, for egg production, and they will strip the walleyes and then let them go and then bring the eggs back to the hatchery. And Jeff will tell you when they get a 10, 11, 12, 13 pound walleye, they absolutely cheer. That one fish gives them three quarters of a million to a million eggs. They're twice the size of a 20 inch, 22 inch walleye. Uh, they're 100, virtually 190, 95, 97% viable. The smaller fish, 40, 45% viable. Big fish matter. Doesn't matter whether it's a steelhead, a muskie, smallmouth bass. Put the big fish back. There is, I enjoy shore lunches. I enjoy eating fish, but I always keep one or two uh, smaller trout or smaller salmon, uh, smaller walleye, and let the big fish go. Gotcha. And is there anything, you know, as you talk about, I mean, these are bigger issues, but what would you recommend people listening now that they might be able to do to help either, you know, maybe learn or do some things differently? Like what's your take long-term? Is this kind of, is there any positive outlook on, you know, the, the Great Lakes changing temperatures and things like that? Um, one of the things I, I think I would say is, I know there's a lot of bashing of professionals, if you will. Uh, and I look back on the, the Dr. Colby's and the Peter Colby and John Castleman and uh, Bruce Tufts at Queen's University. The stuff they're doing, and these are all fisheries, uh, fisheries folks, is absolutely incredibly mind-blowing. It is amazing. And you have to say to yourself, 
at least say this, these folks have not dedicated their life to producing bad fisheries for us. If they're sounding alarms or they're suggesting things, listen to what they're saying and read why they're saying it. They're not trying to produce bad fisheries for us. They're trying to produce the best. They've dedicated their whole life to it. So give them the benefit of the doubt, ask them intelligent questions, listen to what they respond. And there's no problem having a disagreement with them, but be courteous about it. And they are, as a general rule, putting our best interest at heart. So be active and listen. That's great advice. And we'll, yeah, I think following Peter or any of the other folks you talked about would be a good start just to stay on top of that. And we'll send everybody out to uh, outdoorcanada.ca, uh, Gord, if they want to follow you. And you've got a lot of um, uh, you've got a lot of information there, right? Well, there's probably lots of these topics we talked about today that people could dig in. What, what would you recommend if they're heading over there right now to outdoorcanada.ca? You know, they go just search. Just look at my name, Gord Pizer, P-Y for the U.S. folks, P-Y-Z-E-R for Canada, P-Y-Z-E-R. Just type that in and you'll find Facebook, Instagram, and I link everything to that social media. So follow me on the, and the other thing I probably get, (laughs) I hate to say this, 25 to 50 direct messages a day through Facebook or Instagram, but uh, there's nothing more I enjoy more than uh, conversing back and forth, direct messaging to folks. Oh, good. So you'll respond. So if somebody wants to send you a DM, they can connect with you there. Absolutely. Perfect. All right, Gord. Well, this has been a great uh, kind of initial step, you know, for us. I think that you gave us a bunch of people we could follow up with, including uh, you mentioned Scott Gardner, I think would be a great guy to chat with. and. Yeah, until the next one, I just want to say thanks for all the information today and for all the good work you've done over the years. And uh, yeah, I appreciate what you're doing and looking forward to keeping in touch with you. Well, thank you, Dave. And you scared me. This is the first time I've ever been nervous. Oh, Roy, there you go. Because I saw wet fly swing and I go, oh my God, I'm trying to think now about wet fly <laughs> uh, swinging flies. <laughs> Amazing. I got you. So that's, that's great. I always say that, you know, you want to, I think you're better off having a little bit of anxiety going into, you know what I mean? Like, do you ever feel, well, before we go out of that, I want to hear that because you've done, you know, years, like we said, 40, 50 years of doing this. When you go into your seminars, all this stuff, do you ever, are you anxious at all there? I have to be honest. I drive my wife crazy because I'm not. We'll go for dinner and I'll be, I'll go, oh my God, I got to give a seminar in six minutes. I don't even know what the topic is. Oh, Nice. Yeah, you got it so dialed. You can just you can riff. You can just pretty much riff. I, I I I there's not too many questions, Dave. I haven't been asked. Yeah, that's right. I know that's great. Well, we'll definitely be keeping in touch with you, and we'll send everybody else, like we said, out to OutdoorCanada.ca. And yeah, thanks again, Gord. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Dave. There it is, Gord Pizer, wetflyswing.com slash four four zero four hundred forty. You can head over there right now and grab some of the links and show notes everything we talked about today. And uh, and you can check out what Gord has going. I'm sure we're going to have some links out to Outdoor Canada, In Fisherman, and some of the other great resources. And uh, and that is that is where you got to go. Quick shout out. Uh, this will be the last shout out uh, for this build out bonus that we had because uh, it just ended. And tonight, uh, if you're getting this episode live tonight, we're having a Facebook live where we're announcing the winner. And we typically bring out a few surprises on those events. So even if you didn't enter, 
uh, you might be able to get a little bonus on that tonight. You can check it out right now. Facebook Live, Wet Fly Swing. Uh, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash live. Check it out right now. Quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Mike, Mike Zagornis, Mike Zagorgas, Mike Zagornis, Mike Zagornis. Say that uh, three times really fast right now. And there's actually a T at the start of that last name. So everybody, everybody on the count of three, ready and go. All right. Mike uh, reached out to us on email. He said, uh, my name is Mike Zagornis. I wanted to make a recommendation on someone who you may be interested in interviewing. His name is Dave Roller. He is a guide in Michigan. He is on the Pier Marquette and also does Muskegon, um, Manistee Rivers. He's a wonderful guide. He's very knowledgeable, very fun to be around. This is cool. Bunch of great stuff here from Mike. I love this, Mike. Thank you for the heads up on Dave Roller. I'm definitely going to reach out to Dave. If Dave, uh, Dave, if he's listening, maybe I already have, but uh, this is exciting uh, to get Dave on. I'm excited to put this together for you, Mike. And thanks for the shout out. If you want to get a shout out on this episode and want us to put together an episode for you, you can reach out to me right now, Dave at wetflyswing.com. Send me an email and let me know um, you've been listening to the show. Whether you're brand new, been listening to years, I would love to connect with you and give you a shout out on this podcast. Okay, I think I am going to leave it there for tonight. Um, as always, we got some good stuff coming up here. I'm excited to dig into some of our uh, new podcasts we have going. We've been talking about this. You've seen a few of these. We've got uh, Jeff Liskey who's coming on. He's going to be doing our Great Lakes uh, podcast. And uh, and it's just going to be a good year all around. And uh, and I hope you have a chance to catch up with me either online or on the water. And, uh, and I'm going to get out of here. I appreciate you today for stopping in. And I hope you have a good evening, good morning, or good afternoon, wherever in the world you are right now. And I appreciate you for checking in. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.